say, I don't know about you, but pap smear changes happen so frequently, I feel like, and I can't keep up anymore now that my primary practice is really just in obstetrics. Yeah, and it's really difficult, I think, even for our residents to remember everything, especially with Creogs looming overhead in, towards the end of January. So what methods do you have of making sure that they and us keep up to date? Well, if I need a quick reference, one place that I can know I can turn to is the OBG project because I can hold this in my special library on my bookshelf and say, aha, this is the most recent thing that I know that they have read and up to date and a nice bullet pointed summary. And then they've even got an alert on their homepage right now to get you signed up to be able to know as soon as the newest recommendations coming from the USPSTF on cervical cancer screening get dropped. Um, That's pretty, pretty neat that you can be right on the front lines of brand new changes in patient care. Yeah, absolutely. And even more for residents, uh, they have the resident core curriculum. So you can go ahead and sign up for that um, and basically look at comprehensive OBGYN resources for your education. And of course, now the OBG project also has an app so you can access this even more quickly and easily from your phone. Get signed up for all of the great things that come from the OBG project, including OBG First, absolutely free for residents all four years on our website, creagsovercoffee.com. Check out the sidebar, get signed up. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is Creag's. Over, over coffee. All right. So, Faye, today we're going to jump into probably a short, sweet episode, um, but about a very serious obstetric emergency, and that's amniotic fluid embolism. Um, so, what are our learning objectives for today? Yeah, so today we're going to know the presentation of an amniotic fluid embolism. We're going to review the proposed pathophysiology of the AFE. And then finally, we're going to discuss the appropriate immediate management of an amniotic fluid embolism. To read along, we'll post the uh, SMFM clinical guideline number nine, which is AFE diagnosis and management. All right, Nick, let's jump into it. So let's first talk about what exactly is an AFE and how does it present? Yeah, so I think important to remember AFE is a clinical diagnosis and it's characterized by a triad of sudden onset symptoms or signs. So the first is sudden onset hypoxia, and that's quickly followed by sudden onset hypotension. And that hypotension frequently results in cardiac arrest or cardiovascular collapse. Then after the hypoxia and hypotension, there is coagulopathy in up to 83% of cases. That coagulopathy can be in conjunction with the cardiopulmonary symptoms, or it can follow them separately, um, but usually occurs in some sort of close sequence to them. This coagulopathy is quite profound. Um, Not only do you have the vaginal bleeding that you might expect with delivery and whatnot, or with a hysterotomy or cesarean delivery, um, but you get bleeding from the venipuncture surgical sites. You can get hematuria, you can get GI hemorrhage, you can get epistaxis or nose bleeding. Um, And so it's quite scary um, to see just bleeding coming from everywhere, if you will. Again, I want to stress that the diagnosis is clinical. It's based on this triad, the hypoxia, hypotension with cardiac arrest, and coagulopathy. 
while excluding other potential causes like massive pulmonary embolism um, or bleeding that results in significant hypotension and then hypovolemic shock. These cases are often dramatic. Um, there's really a sudden and abrupt change. And it's preceded not infrequently, it actually describes in the clinical guideline by some impending sense of doom from the patient or a change in mental status or agitation that seems, again, out of character. You can also, if the patient's laboring, see a change in fetal status that may be sudden, profound decelerations, loss of variability, and or terminal bradycardia. Again, clinical diagnosis, there's no lab test that can confirm or refute this diagnosis. Now, AFE is hard to study, admittedly, um, but a national registry of AFE reported back in 2015 that about 70% of events occurred during labor, around 11% of events occurred after vaginal delivery, and close to 20% occurred during a cesarean delivery. And because of its rarity, the incidence is hard to characterize. Predicting AFE, then, is basically impossible. There's no identified or true risk factor. It seems like there's some relation related to a moment where there's some exchange of fluids between the fetal and the maternal compartment, likely. So, you know, you think about the times that that might happen, like operative deliveries or cesarean deliveries, placenta previas, um, placenta accreta, abruption type of things. Um, those are all moments where no, I guess, shearing of the placenta or whatnot, or amniotomy happening at that time. Again, that there might be some exchange of fluid between fetal compartment and maternal compartment. Really kind of to close out all of this, this is, you know, something that really you may never see in your career, actually. It's such a rare, rare event. Um, but because it's impossible to predict and it happens in the course of really routine obstetrical events, you need to be prepared to handle it. So I think, Faye, you know, the, the name amniotic fluid embolus implies that amniotic fluid embolizes, right? Um, but what exactly is the cause of AFE or what do we understand is the pathophysiology? Right. Like you said, we think potentially that it's caused by amniotic fluid entering the maternal circulation because that's what it's called, but it's actually unclear exactly what causes AFE. But again, like you said, it's often reported at the time where there's some disruption of that maternal and fetal interface. And so whether it's actually amniotic fluid passing into the maternal circulation being the underlying cause or not, there are a fair number of subsequent clinical manifestations that can be observed. So first, there is massive pulmonary vasoconstriction and possible mechanical obstruction of pulmonary vasculature due to amniotic fluid components. Um, this vasoconstriction leads to acute core pulmonale or sudden right ventricular failure. And accompanying this is acute respiratory failure and severe hypoxemia. So the best way to think about all of these things coming together and potentially I think a valid way to think pathophysiologically too is basically like a massive anaphylactoid reaction. And so with the massive afterload on the right ventricle on the echocardiogram, what you'll see is a dilated right ventricle with the ballooning of the ventricular septum towards the left. So a TTE or a transthoracic echo and or even a transesophageal echo during an event may help to visualize this concern in an AFE. Now, core pulmonale in this acute fashion then leads to left ventricular failure as well because there's no blood going forward to the lungs, meaning that there's also no blood going to the actual left ventricle, and this will result in profound systemic hypotension. 
And finally, it's thought that the amniotic fluid or inflammatory insult activates factor seven in the coagulation cascade, and thus this will activate platelets and consume them in a process that ultimately results in disseminated intravascular coagulopathy, or DIC. So the hemorrhage that results further exacerbates this hemodynamic instability at the level of the heart, and then multi-organ failure can result. So we'll post a figure that um, talks about this proposed pathophysiology because I think talking through it sometimes is a little bit confusing. It might be easier to just like look at that diagram. So very scary, obviously, Nick, um, if we were to encounter an AFE. Um, so knowing that then, how should we manage an AFE if we were to ever encounter one? Yeah. So, you know, we've talked about on the show before some of the things with cardiac arrest, Faye. So we'll go through some of the high points there. But really, the first thing is to suspect AFE. It needs to be considered in the differential for any sudden cardiopulmonary collapse in a pregnant or recently postpartum patient. And then, you know, really alongside that, the first thing to do in order to save the individual's life is high quality CPR. Start with your BLS or ACLS training. Um, and management really of AFE, even when suspected, doesn't differ initially related to cardiac arrest of any other cause. So the most important thing you can do is to start those high-quality chest compressions. Take a listen back again to our cardiac arrest episode for a refresher on CPR, but just some high points from that, though. You want to use the same rate of compressions as for non-pregnant individuals, about 100 a minute, aiming for a compression depth of 2 inches. You want to switch compressors every 2 minutes to prevent fatigue. If the patient's undelivered, you're going to tilt to that left lateral decubitus or displace the uterus leftward with an assistant, so that way you're preventing that aortic cable compression. And then you do the resuscitative hysterotomy, or I think more commonly known as a perimortem cesarean, at four minutes if ROSC or return of spontaneous circulation has not yet been achieved, um, and if the patient's not imminently delivering vaginally. Obviously, if the patient's imminently delivering vaginally, performing operative delivery is appropriate in that scenario. Important to high-quality resuscitation is having a diverse team. So, you know, hopefully in your hospital you have a code bell when folks know where L&D is so that way they can respond quickly, but you're going to need a lot of folks in these resuscitations. You're going to need anesthesia, you're going to need respiratory therapy, critical care, OB, MFM, nursing, blood bank, pediatrics or neonatology. They all need to be part of this care and emergency response um, in order to do this effectively. Now, in the acute setting of amniotic fluid embolus, there's not really any well-studied protocols, if you will, to treat AFE. None are discussed in the SMFM clinical guideline aside from, again, just high-quality CPR and ACLS protocols. We'll just take a little bit of a detour here because I think even in emails that we've gotten from the show and asking about this, folks have asked us about the AOK protocol. Um, it's one that I think a lot of folks have heard of if you've been around amniotic fluid embolus at all. That AOK protocol is an acronym for atropine, ondansetron, and ketorolac. Um, atropine, one milligram, is supposed to reverse the parasympathetic activity that may contribute to pulmonary vasospasm. Ondansetron is Zofran. Again, it blocks serotonin receptors, but in this case, it's blocking serotonin receptors at the vagal terminals of the heart and lungs that may also be contributory to pulmonary vasoconstriction. And then Toradol or Ketorolac, 30 milligrams, blocks thromboxane, which is a major platelet activator. So actually, in this case, 
Katorlak is going to be a stop to your DIC pathway. Um, the idea behind this therapy, as we've just outlined, is really to interrupt some of these vasoconstricting or inflammatory pathways that contribute to AFE. This is obviously really difficult to study in a systematic or rigorous way, um, so I don't know if we'll ever have real high-quality data about the effectiveness of the AOK protocol, but just in case you ever hear about it or asked about it, that is what it is. All right, so after we get out of the arrest scenario, Faye, um, what do we do to continue management? Right. So um, as anyone who's taking care of anyone who's had an acute arrest, we know that post-arrest care is extremely important. And a lot of these things are going to be very common to anyone who's suffered um, a cardiac arrest. So number one, your MAP goals should be 65 millimeters of mercury or up. You want to have appropriate oxygenation with the attempt to wean oxygen to the minimal amount possible to avoid ischemia reperfusion injury. And then you want to draw a broad set of labs. Basically have, um, you know, your nurses uh, or your techs draw a rainbow. So you're going to want to check in on your CBC, your CMP, troponins, BNP, and then a coagulation profile. So that's your fibrinogen, PT, PTT. These are some good places to start. But if you don't remember these off the top of your head in the midst of when everything is happening, it's okay to just tell them to draw a rainbow and then figure out what orders you want later on and put them in. And then if it's not already initiated, you really want to prepare for that massive transfusion protocol because of the ongoing or impending coagulopathy. So your TXA can be considered, um, but also you want to make sure that you're treating acne because we're also thinking about that uterus. The uterus can become atonic in the context of profound hypotension and arrest. The one major challenge as a surgeon is to see this bleeding and the acne and to be tempted to perform a hysterectomy because you're saying, oh my gosh, there's so much bleeding. We've given lots of medications to try and get the uterus to tamp down and nothing's working. But don't be tempted to do that hysterectomy. It may very well serve you in the setting of an AFE to not do it because further incisions could give way to further sites of bleeding that are difficult to control. Because remember, your bleeding is not necessarily just because of acne. It's also because you're in DIC. So wait for the products to get on board and resuscitation to catch up. Um, and that can potentially save you time in the OR and also more bleeding sites. And remember from our transfusion uh, protocol um, episode that the best practice is to give a one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one ratio of your red blood cells, plasma, and your platelets. The last couple of things is just to remember to manage airway concerns and right ventricular failure if that's present on an echo. And there's a variety of agents that can be used um, to treat right ventricular failure, including things like sildenafil, pressors like dibutamine or norepinephrine, inhaled nitric oxide, or even prostaglandins. Um, if your location has it, an ECMO, ECMO can also be considered, and these will be obviously in the purview of our anesthesiologists and our critical care colleagues for all of these things. You know, hopefully we are not the ones cannulating anybody for ECMO because something very bad is happening if an OB is doing that. Mm -hmm. The last thing is in your hospital, you should verify if you have a protocol or a checklist to help with AFE management. So even though these are rare, SMFM has published a checklist to help manage AFE, which we will link on our website, as well as some information on how to implement uh, this checklist. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. So why don't we go ahead and summarize? Sure. So we started off talking that AFE is a clinical diagnosis characterized by a triad of sudden symptoms, hypoxia, 
hypotension that often results in cardiac arrest or cardiovascular collapse, and coagulopathy. That coagulopathy can come in conjunction with those cardiopulmonary symptoms or it can follow them. Importantly, again, the diagnosis is clinical. There's no lab that's going to tell you that this is an AFE. You exclude other causes such as massive pulmonary embolism or cardiac arrest for other reasons like bleeding. Um, but to tell you, these cases are frequently dramatic. The patients often will have an impending sense of doom or a change in mental status. 70% occur during labor, about 10% after a vaginal delivery, and around 20% during a cesarean delivery. The incidence is very hard to know given that it's very rare. This is something you may never see in your career, but should be striving to be prepared to handle it. In terms of the pathophysiology of an AFE, there is potentially some disruption of the maternal fetal interface that could lead to amniotic fluid to pass to the maternal circulation that leads to a few things. This leads to massive pulmonary vasoconstriction and obstruction of the pulmonary vasculature, which leads to right heart failure. Ultimately, this then leads to dilated RV um, with the ballooning of the septum towards the left side. Right heart failure in this acute fashion is then going to lead to left heart failure because there's really no blood going forward. And also, there's going to be an inflammatory insult due to the amniotic fluid, which is then going to lead us to DIC. We then talked about the management of AFE, particularly in the acute sense. Again, you need to start with just your high-quality CPR. That management really doesn't differ initially with any other form of cardiac arrest, again, chest compressions that are 100 a minute, depth of two inches, tilt the pregnant patient a little bit left or displace the uterus leftward, to prevent that aortic cable compression, and then a resuscitative hysterotomy at four minutes without ROSC if you're not delivering vaginally imminently. Get your high quality ACLS team to the bedside, so all of the folks that you need in order to run a resuscitation. Again, there are no well-studied medication protocols to treat AFE, but we talked about that AOK protocol is one theoretical protocol as atropine 1 milligram, ondansetron 8 milligrams, ketorolac 30 milligrams. In terms of post-arrest care, this is going to be very similar to anyone who's suffered a cardiac arrest. So you want to keep their blood pressures up. You want to oxygenate them, but not give them too much oxygen to try to avoid ischemia reperfusion injury, get your lab work, and then also treat the DIC, which is basically making sure that you're giving products. Try not to do that hysterectomy when you see the acne and the bleeding, because again, this is due to DIC. And then also you're going to want to manage your airway and the right ventricular failure. So that patient is going to the ICU. They're likely going to be getting pressors and also potentially ECMO may even be started. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed the podcast today, head over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is. Give us a five-star reading and review. You can find us on social media on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee. And if you want to support the show, you can go ahead and go onto our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. We have show notes for this episode and all of our previous episodes, as well as the Rosh Review Question of the Week on our website, CreogsOverCoffee.com. And if you want to email us, give us a suggestion, uh, let us know if there's any mistakes in previous episodes, go ahead and email us at creogsrivercoffee at gmail.com.